Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, July 6th. The semifinals are now officially set at the 2022 Wimbledon for the first time since the 1997 U.S. Open. We'll have five first-time semifinalists competing in the action, of course, during the quarterfinal round. For the first time since the 2002 Wimbledon, we had three of our men's quarterfinal matches going the distance. Always a good thing when you have to go back 20, 25 years in time to find historical comparisons for the action we see unfolding, of course here on today's podcast. What we want to do for all of you listeners is set the scene for the semifinal rounds. We're going to preview all four of our single semifinals, talk about all eight of our semifinalists, talk about their roads getting to this part of the tournament, what each of them have to do if they hope to continue to advance a jam-packed show for all of you listeners today. And if you're going to try and cover oh so many things, it always helps to have someone here to help you do so. Thankfully, we have the man you now know as the co-host of this Mini Break podcast feed and, of course, an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and Baseline. I'm not going to dive into his LinkedIn profile, but there's a lot of fun facts in there as well. It's our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. We've got four days left of action at the year's third Grand Slam. How much juice do you have left in the tank? First of all, official co-host. I'm waiting for my golden plaque to put on the door. <laughs> Second yeah. of all, I, I, admit, I admit I am running on fumes. This is the, the bottom fell out of the tournament as it typically does between Monday and Tuesday when we get all those, that last day of all those matches and then we get quarterfinal action on through Tuesday through the end of the week. And I'll tell you, I am ready for the finals. I am ready for a smooth championship weekend and a well-deserved vacation. 
<laughs> it's 4.41 p.m. Eastern time now, 4.42. This is the earliest we've been able to record a mini break throughout this fortnight. Certainly today's action. What did you think about the schedule? We try to avoid schedule talk here on our Crack Rackets podcast because every tournament can schedule every tournament better. And, of course, scheduling certainly impacts the exposure the sport gets at the biggest levels, whether it be from a TV perspective, who's playing when, on what court are those matches being played. All of those things are significant, but if you're trying to weigh that with 64 matches, day one and day two of the tournament, your brain's just going to explode. That said, they didn't do four you know, back-to-back-to-back-to-back matches on center court. They went two on court one, two on center. Did you like that today? What did you think of that strategy? certainly been tradition for the last couple of years. I do recall switching between ESPN and ESPN two for center court and court one action. I mean, for me, it's all the same at this point, European slam, <laughs> wake up at seven thirty-eight, and, you know, catch the first match as it's going and you pick, you pick one and then kind of catch up with the other as when the other one ends, you know, when Halep beat Anisimova, I switched over to Tomoyanovich. When Kyrgios beat Green, I switched back to Nadal. So, I mean, it's one of those things where, you can't keep up with everything, and thankfully, we're going to get our undivided attention for the semis, and I think that's ultimately all that matters. Yeah, I have become very much accustomed, to your point, of watching multiple matches on multiple halves of the screen at once. That said, quarterfinal action, you've got Nadal in play, you've got Halep in play, and I know they didn't overlap in terms of their match scheduling, but I like the ability to be able to focus on everything, still not miss out on you know, whether it's obviously uh, the Anisimova Halep match, watching that just from start to finish, not have to worry, okay, what's going on in Kyrgios versus Green? And then, of course, on the flip side of that, to have, you know, Elena Rabakina in a third set while uh, against Alia Tamjanovic. And she, both those players looking for their first semifinals. It just would have been nice to enjoy all of those matches individually. At the same time, again, two matches is not overwhelming. I agree with you. And this has been the format for the past couple of years, of course, now with the tournament schedule is going to do is flip things. It's going to be one uh, singles draw the rest of the way. On Thursday, we have our women's singles semifinals. Friday, we've got the men's half. Of course, on Saturday, we've got ourselves our women's singles final or ladies singles final, I suppose, as this is Wimbledon vernacular. And then on Sunday, the gentlemen's singles final as well. Boy, wouldn't Rafael Nadal have loved two days off when you look at how that schedule is going to break out here? And certainly Djokovic played a five-set match against Sinner, but just always one of those little things to keep in mind. And we'll get into all of that on today's show. Again, we want to preview all of our semifinal matches. We want to talk about each of these eight players remaining in singles competition, how they all got there, what they have to do to end up in the winner's circle. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners appreciate all of you who have joined us throughout the year's third grand slam david kane deserves a vacation we know the tennis world doesn't take a vacation here at crack racket so don't worry los cabos atlanta hamburg gestad we're ready for the post wimbledon grind we'll have action and coverage of all of it here for you on the mini break podcast feed but of course again we're so grateful to all of you that continue to tune in day in day out and we look forward to continuing to cover this third grand slam at wimbledon of of course, a massive shout out as well to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, providing the best equipment at 
the best prices. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. Not only we let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point. Symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. That promo code is CR15 with all all of that said, David, let's get into our women's singles semifinals, and let's start on the top half of the draw. Matches played, obviously, on day 10. Simona Halep, it's her 12th consecutive victory at Wimbledon. She's into the third Wimbledon semifinal of her career. She does it with a straight set win over Amanda Anisimova, ultimately the 16th seed Halep, a 6-2, 6-4 victory, her second victory over Anisimova in two consecutive events. The reason I bring that up, it's just extraordinarily difficult to beat a player in two tournaments in a row, particularly a fellow top 20 player, as if you look at the points race this season, both Halep and Anisimova have been this year, of course, the other aspect of that is how definitively Simona Halep beat Amanda Nisimova in Bad Hamburg. Wasn't a three-set marathon, wasn't even a close six-and-five affair. Halep beat Nisimova two-and-one. And you just always wonder, A, what the after effects of that match are going to be, and B, you know, now that you've seen an opponent once, how difficult or easy will it be to replicate that first result. And through the first hour, hour 15 minutes of this match, it felt like it was smooth sailing for Simona Halep, who found herself not only up 6-2, but 6-2-4-1 up in about an hour of play, David. 6-2-4-2? Am I screwing up the score here? You gave me a little single 5-1. 6-2-5-1 is what you are saying to me. Leave it all in, Super Producer Daniel Westoff. I guess to me it's because that 5-1 game was the game where things started to get a little bit funky for Halep, or in particular it felt like something clicked in the head of Amanda Nisimova where it's, okay, it's time for me to go down swinging. But credit to Anisimova, who did catch a bit of fire down the home stretch of that second set, was able to narrow the gap. But again, ultimately, Simona Halep, 6-2, 6-4 victory to advance over the number 20 seed. Halep, again, third Wimbledon semifinal for her. You look overall in her career now competing in her ninth Grand Slam semifinal. She's been exceptional, in my opinion, the unequivocal best player in the women's draw so far. What say you? First of all, talking of Anisimova, it is often difficult to disappoint in two very distinctly different ways in one match. And yet Anisimova managed to do that by falling behind a set in 5-1 pretty quickly. It wasn't even that close. And then at the same time, yes, as well as she played to get to 5-4, love 40 on a frustrated Simona Halep serve. Halep was missing her first serve all over the place, was kicking in 66 mile an hour second serves really asking for Anisimova to level the set at five ball. It felt like one of those moments where you could just see the score tick over to seven, five in favor of the American. And yet some misses from Anisimova at some crucial points and Halep ends up walking away with a very strange win, which started with, to your point, a very emphatic victory. It appeared to be for Halep. And then it got very complicated towards the end. And it does make me wonder where Halep goes in the semifinal against Rabakina because up against another even bigger, even flatter, even taller hitter in the Russian-born Kazakh, will she be able to apply more consistent pressure to Halep and really put her into fits on this grass court? So it did. It was a strange ending because it put me into a, in an odd mindset, especially given the ups and downs we've seen from Halep throughout 2022. 
Yeah, well, let's start with the glass half full because to your point— I started with the glass half empty. <laughs> no, well, well, I want to get to the glass half empty, but I think you started with the glass half full as well, talking about that first hour of player. Ultimately, you look at this match, it was an hour, three minutes, so excuse me. The first—actually, I think it was a 26-minute first set, if memory serves me correct. So I said the first hour, I meant that pejoratively. I meant the first act of this match, which was Simona Halep just running away with set number one. And you talked about the first serve struggles for Halep down the stretch in set two. Two. We'll get to that, but on serve, for the most part, Smilla Halp has been exceptional throughout the course of this Wimbledon. Again, she's yet to drop a set in this tournament. She's played one seven five set, you know, let alone a tiebreaker, which she's yet to be pushed to. And you look for Simona Halep, it was, you know, the fact that she dropped nine points on serve in total through that first set. And, you know, two winners for her, but only five unforced errors. She just was able to track everything down and force Anisimova to have to hit that extra shot was hitting high and heavy to the Anisimova backhand wing and Anisimova was producing more errors on that backhand side than I expected throughout the course of that first set but just Halep continued to ask the question and it would take you know ridiculous power tennis when Amanda Anisimova held for 2-5 in the first set in that game she hits this ridiculous ridiculous forehand short angle cross court winner after hitting two fantastic drives with depth and it's just the drives didn't do it because Halp was tracking those balls down and I've made this comparison all week long it's Djokovician in her movement levels and the physicality she can play with on this surface her ability to get in and out of corners her ability to track down the big ball and then just the depth she can generate out of those corners you referenced it earlier for Simona Halep this season, who is one of just two players to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage, who's now 31-8 and eight overall on the year. Six of those eight losses, as we've adjudicated before, were due to her just running out of steam physically or due to some sort of injury we weren't publicly aware about, but that had been nagging her and that had, uh, you know, hurt her performance on court. She Through the first... 45 minutes, and even I thought throughout the course of this match, I didn't think it was an injury or any ailment. I thought Anisimova's level raised throughout the course of the match, but physically, this seems to be the healthiest Simona Halep has been, and it's just a stark reminder that, you know, again, the physicality for Simona Halep is what has separated her from the field this past decade. Absolutely. I mean, it was also funny to think about how often we've talked about that so-called sliding doors match between Amanda Anisimova and Ash Barty. And now that Halep improves to now, what, 3-1 on Anisimova, that lone loss being at the 2019 Roland Garros, where Halep was the defending champion, I start to wonder what would have happened if Halep had managed to get a better handle on the Anisimova game just a little bit quicker. How many more slams would she have right now coming uh, into Paris, having defended that title after winning it the year before? But yeah, I think this is the happiest, the healthiest, the most zen performance we've gotten from Halep all season. She has spent all year looking for that balance, and she finally seems to have found it. I mean, I think we got a lot of hype when the Moritoglu partnership first happened. I think we were expecting a lot more from her, given the fact that she seemed healthy in a good place ahead of that European swing. It didn't happen right away. And I think there were a lot of people, including myself, willing to, you know, sound the alarm. I mean, now she's coming onto grass, you know, a surface where she hasn't traditionally been that comfortable, 2019 Wimbledon aside, but things have really clicked into gear. She has pretty much destroyed both Palabadosa and Amanda Inismova back to back, and then has another big hitter in the semifinals, 
glass half full, this is just more target practice for the Romanian heading into what could be yet another slam final. Yeah. And to stick with the glass half full, because I want to talk about the glass half empty when we talk about how Rabakina may have opportunities to attack Halep in a bit. But for Simona Halep, and I've talked about this earlier, and we'll do the big picture Simona Halep, where she ranks this century amongst WTA players. I'm going to run all the resumes over the course of the next couple of days so that next week, early next week, when this Wimbledon is done, we have some time to look big picture. I'll have that opportunity to offer you all of the stats. But, you know, I heard, I think it was Tracy Austin on the broadcast today, bring up the fact that the Williams sisters, Kvitova, Kerber, that's the list of active players with more slam semifinals than Simona Halep right now. And, you know, again, Simona Halep has won over 70% of her matches in every season, but one since 2013. Since 2013, it's been a decade of this now for Simona Halep. And, you know, I'm going to say she's been a top 10 player for that entire decade as well. I don't care what the rankings say over the past year. The rankings have been funny. She's been a bit injured for the past decade. She's just been a staple. And, you know, you look for her in terms of those nine Grand Slam semifinals. She's made a Grand Slam semifinal in every season but 2016 and 2021 in the past nine years. So seven of the past nine years, she's made the final four at at least one slam. It's just this bastion of consistency in what has otherwise been the most unstable, the most erratic era of the WTA Tours history, at least in a recent stretch of time, certainly. And yes, I understand we had the Osaka run, which we're still in, by the way. And we had the Ashley Barty run. And it feels like we're at the start of the Iga Svantec run. But, you know, through all of the Serena Williams prime chaos, Halep has been in the mix. She's just had her, you know, her bites at the apple over the past decade. And that can't go underappreciated, which I, I think sometimes she vacillates from so hypercritically analyzed because, of course, and I apologize for the tangent, and I want your perspective here on Halep because, I and I texted this to you that this was coming, I see a lot of Andy Murray in her tennis narrative of her career. Not talking about the personalities, the off-court, anything. It's just talking about the arc of their tennis careers because for so long, it was Halep nipping at the bit, right? And Halep, who was making Grand Slam semifinals, Grand Slam finals, not able to get over the hump. The perhaps prime example of that, that 2018 Australian Open finals, her versus Wozniacki. Someone's finally going to capture their first Grand Slam title. And ultimately, of course, it was Wozniacki, not Halep, who gets to the winner's circle but then, much like Andy Murray, after winning that U.S. Open title in 2012, really the Wimb- uh, the gold medal at Wimbledon in 2012 as well, that five-year grace period he had after winning that grace period's the wrong word, five-year run he had after winning that first slam, 2012 to 2016, which in my opinion is the Big Four era, that is a chapter of the Big Three storyline, where you know he competed and made a couple more slam finals, including a French Open final during that run and he was confident enough to end the season world number one and get there in 2016 the same way Halp has been able to do that as well you know both of them so hypercritically analyzed early in their career will they get to the winner's circle and then you know now that they have it's kind of just taken for granted that oh these get you know they're these champions that of course are amongst us but they're not the highest caliber of champions the way Federer Novak Nadal are on the men's side. Serena is on the women's side. 
I just think, you know, again, when you when we look at Simona Halep, we'll have to defer to Jeff Sackman where she is in the tennis 126. But, like, she's on the lists. I mean, I think there are a lot of just universal signifiers of tennis champions. But certainly if you wanted to, to make a direct comparison to Halep and Murray, I think there are a lot of narrative beats that are familiar. I mean, I think both Murray and Halep earlier in their career had to get a lot stronger, add more power to their game. They were both two players with tremendous tennis IQs. They're players who had, you know, the influence and impact of a signature coach, whether it's in a Von Lendl or a Darren Cahill for Halep, you know, conquering, you know, finally conquering their first major title sort of seemingly after multiple, you know, disappointments and feeling like it was going to happen a lot sooner. You know, I think there are a lot of uh, similarities between the two of them, not the least of which their on-court attitude, which was, you know, certainly apparent today against Anisimova, the frustration of Halep. Halep famously, when she had a new member of her team watching her up a set and five love, turned over to Darren Kale and said, why is Simona frustrated in this moment? I mean, this is someone who definitely is as hypercritical of herself as, as perhaps others are of her. And even heading into this Wimbledon, it's, it feels very hard for me to accept that she is on paper and perhaps on court as well. The big favorite to win this title. I still in many ways feel that it's on Shabor's title to win. She just seems like just, this feels like something that's leading up to her big victory, but at the same time, we cannot discount the tremendous uh, results and shot making that Halp has been able to put together, particularly on these last two matches on center court. If it is a match between, if it is a match that pits together, you know, confidence, experience, big match toughness, all of that favors Halep. And if she brings that to the semis in the final, she will very much be in the hunt for a third major title and most improbably a second at Wimbledon. We no. didn't even think she'd win one. Just remarkable. Absolutely. And you look for Halp, who had her first serve percentage drop from 63% to 56% from sets one to set two. And look, Anisimova was able to capitalize on that fact, started taking these massive cuts on the return of serve. And Halep, even with her defensive capabilities, there's just only so much you can do when someone's connecting on the return of serve as cleanly as Anisimova was. And to your point, that is something Elena Rabakina will be able to capitalize on if those service woes carry into the semifinal match. But before we get to Rabakina, just to quickly close the book on Amanda Nisimova coming out of this Wimbledon, obviously a disappointing ending for her tournament, but played it extraordinarily well against Coco Goff and, you know, did such a great job of just not being distracted by the nonsense that came with Harmony Tan and the creativity and the slices. It was just like, you can't hurt me. I am better at this t- at striking a tennis ball than you. It's time for me to crush you regardless of what this stage is. And I thought this was a massive jump forward for Amanda Nisimova, who gets to her first second week at Wimbledon and who is one of two players along with Elisa Mertens, who has reached the fourth round of all three majors to this point of the season. Now, why do I bring that up? This is something I tweeted out. A couple of days ago, only one player made the round, fourth round or further at every major last season. That player was Iga Sviantek. And I'm not insinuating that Amanda Nisimova is going to make a Sviantek-like leap next season. You know, I think she needs to win seven matches in a row before we can start counting to 37. But if you're telling you're saying me saying Elise Mertens will. Well, I'm never counted out with Elise. Never. Um, I'm saying... If Amanda Nismova ends the season top 10 this year, 
let alone next year. I don't think that's going to shock anyone. I mean, she was 11th in the points race coming into this Wimbledon, would obviously be top 10 if this Wimbledon offered points. Now, it does not, but I think you can pretty definitively make the case, David, that she's been a top 10 player this year. I think Inisimova, and we saw as she left the court in much the same way that Palapadosa did, there's a gift that puts them side by side, both sort of shaking their head. I mean, it was a very much a Simona Halep day for both of those women. But I, so, I, so I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment coming from her in the immediate aftermath of this loss. However, you know, this was a tremendous step forward overall when it comes to winning matches that she is in many ways supposed to win, defeating two opponents in a row in Coco Golf and Harmony Tan, who could have very much disrupted, flummoxed, frustrated her into many unforced errors and just sort of taken her self out of the match. And she refused to do it, showed tremendous variety against Coco Goff, showed tremendous maturity against Harmony Tan and can leave this match feeling like, listen, if I had just started clicking with my game a little bit sooner, things might've turned out very differently for me in this match against Simona Halep. I think the longer she continues to incorporate Darren Cahill, as part of her team. I don't think it's a coincidence that she had her best slam run with him watching from the sidelines. You know, I think that's been a tremendous uh, addition, really just sort of grounding her and helping her, you know, expand her variety. We saw what he was able to do with Simona. And I think Anisimova has a lot more weaponry for him to work with to really make her into a star. And so I think, you know, while there is no ranking points on offer at this tournament, what we can expect and we can I imagine will be the case is that we're going to see a lot of momentum coming from the successful players at Wimbledon so even though we won't necessarily see the immediate bump in ranking I think a lot of these players will be able to take this momentum to the summer hard courts and find themselves where they're probably supposed to be just a little bit later in the season oh, absolutely you look for Amanda Anisimova has been a resurgent 2022 she's now 29 and 11 overall on the season one of just eight players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Again, the advanced metrics say it, the eye tests say it, the results say it. Amanda Nisimova is just back in the mix now. And given how prominently a role she played in the juniors was competing for junior slam titles at the age of 16 was in the junior front, uh, excuse me, was in the regular French open women's single semifinals in 2019 before she would turn to 18 years old. And, you know, again, we all knew how well she could strike the ball, the better she becomes as a mover, the better, you know, the more capable she becomes at reigning in that power, finding the 75% ball. She's going to continue to play a factor in all of these big events moving forward. But all the credit in the world to Simona Halep, again, into a ninth Grand Slam semifinal in her career, 31-8 and now overall on the season, 68-19 since August 2020. That's a 78% win percentage, David. Simply put, the 30-year-old Halep is still in her prime. The numbers say it. The eye test say it, says it. Now that she's healthy back into a Grand Slam semifinal where she belongs. But look, the tests are going to continue to come. And certainly while it was great to see Hal face her first Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club potential member in the quarterfinal, she's going to get an even starker test 
in the semifinals as she takes on 17th-seeded 23-year-old Elena Rabakina. Rabakina drops her first set of the tournament, but ultimately a three-set victory for her over last year's quarterfinalist Alia Tamjanovic Rabakina, a 4-6-6-2-6-3 victory. Now, Rabakina has not faced a seed so far in her pathway to the semifinals, but I think wins over Andrescu, over Junction Wen, over Tomjanovic on this surface, I think they're all impressive. And when you look for Elena Rabakina, who now has played uh, a grand total of nine sets throughout the course of this tournament, I believe, excuse me, 11 sets, better math, way to go, Alex, throughout the course of this tournament, 11 sets, David, she's been broken nine times. And she came into this tournament with the fourth best hold percentage of any WTA player on tour. That plus one power tennis she's able to play it's just been elite. And watching her pick on the Alia Tomjanovic forehand throughout the course of today, you know, again, we joked about this on the podcast the last time we have you. Davidovich Fokina is going to get fined for skying that ball. Rabakina should be fined for how rude she was, just picking on that Tomjanovic forehand over and over again. I mean, I suppose the fine is the gap in prize money between the two now, but just Rabakina was relentless. Credit to Tomjanovic, who found ways to manufacture some pace early on in set number one. I thought she struck the backhand extraordinarily well throughout this match. But the moment Rabakina identified, hey, if I can get the ball past the service line to the Alia Tomjanovic forehand, she's going to leave something short. And the moment Tomjanovic left something short, Rabakina pounced on it. 34 winners against 28 unforced errors. 15 aces on the day for Rabakina. 15 of 23 at the net as well. I thought she was excellent. And today was a big win for Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Elena Rabakina, Grand Slam semifinalist, to quote that Girls Aloud video from the Brit Awards that I use all the time. It's about time! I mean, it just feels like she has been verging on this kind of result for the last 18 months, if not two years. We go back to the start of that 2020 season, that blistering start where she won 21 of 25 matches, reached four finals, won a title, played Simona Halep so tough in that Dubai final, which would end up being one of the last you know, big tournaments before the lockdown and an end global pandemic. Comes back in 2021 after some slowed momentum, you know, really clocks Serena Williams at Roland Garros, has a big opportunity to make it deep at that French Open, narrowly goes out to Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, and is now finally here at Wimbledon, making a deep run, was so close last year as well in the fourth round against Arena Sabalenka. This is very much overdue. I mean, we look at this women's draw overall. I think we were expecting and predicting a lot of chaos, but at the end of the day, we end up with the Rabakina Halep semifinal. I mean, in a vacuum, if we had someone said that two weeks ago, I think we would have said, well, that's a reasonable semifinal match. That's something we could expect. You know, if either of them go on to win the title, that's a normal thing. Either the 2019 Wimbledon champion wins another one or Rabakina finally breaks through with her tremendous power and ability and wins her first major. Both of those things are Completely reasonable outcomes in what you have said, what in what you have stated is a very wacky era of WTA tennis, all the same. Some very consistent stuff from Rubakina, who is just so talented and so able on these big stages. And it's great to finally see her do it. All credit to Isla Tomjanovic, glass half full, that she was able to replicate her quarterfinal run. Seemingly against all odds, she knew she wasn't going to be able to defend her points, comes here full of them and vigor and does it again anyway. She mentioned last year, you know, that this was that result, that quarterfinal was going to be something that no one could ever take away from her. 
she does it again. I mean, she's someone who can compete on all surfaces. I'm really looking forward to seeing what she can do in the North American summer hard courts. But in the meantime, all credit to Rybakina, who has had her own third set little hiccup when she was up 5-1 and managed to settle herself and make it over the finish line and is, is in with a shot against Halep in the semis. Yeah, well said. I have the numbers for you, of course, and I'm glad you alluded to that early 2020 run because while Rabakina is an efficient 26-12, and 12, winning 68% of her matches this season has been a top 20, top 15 player. You look for her overall in the year, has lost just, I think, two first-round matches throughout the course of this season. Now, hasn't made a final uh, since Adelaide at the first m- month of the season, and this is her first semifinal uh, since that Adelaide run as well. But has just been in the mix everywhere. And again, quarterfinals at a bunch of different locations, round of 16 or further at most of the big events. You look for Elena Rabakina now. She is 88 and 45 since the start of the 2020 season. That's a 66% win percentage. She's 60 and 11 against players ranked outside the top 50, winning 85% of her matches during that stretch of time. What does that mean? Simply put, her power tennis is overwhelming. If you don't have something elite you can do, whether it's your physical or a weapon in response, she's going to beat you at this point. And that's how you establish yourself in the top 30 of the ranking. She's also, again, 76 and 29 against opponents ranked outside the top 20, 12 and 16 against top 20 opponents since the start of 2020. That power tennis, again, on the right day can compete with anyone. And to your point, this is the third time in the last six slams that she's made at least the second week. Uh, of that slam. And it's just, that gets back to the 16-11 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. She beats who she's supposed to beat, finds herself in these third round, fourth round encounters. And then, you know, on a surface like grass, which is so advantageous for her serve, she can just serve through whomever is on the other side of the net for her. Again, 15 aces today against a returner in Alia Tamjanovic, who has pretty good length, able to track down that return of serve. And, you know, I did a really good job with her backhand return of serve, just wasn't able to manufacture anything easy down the home stretch. And that's where there's just a little bit extra for Rabakina. She is, you know, 5'10", 5'11"-ish, and I think moves really well. For someone with that sort of height, I think has an explosive first step, really comfortable moving vertically through the court, you know, forward into the court. And then it's just a comfortable volleyer, goes down swinging, fairly stoic, although she definitely can get a little bit frustrated out on court, no doubt about that. But there's just a place for Rabakina. Rabakina is Sabalenka without all the not, you know, without all the stuff that makes Sabalenka Sabalenka. I was gonna say all the junk, but I love it, all the extracurricular stuff that sums with Cap- Sabalenka. So junk's the wrong word. It's just that transcendent power again. Weekend privileges at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. When she plays this well, there's nothing a Tomjanovic, a Martic, a Jung Chinwen, and Andrescu can really do. It is a streamlined Sabalenka, to be sure. Everything that we know and love about Sabalenka, it is very much the opposite in Rabakina. The only thing that the two have in common is that extreme power, but it's just much cleaner, much more easily replicated from Rabakina. And Uh so, you know, even going into that fourth round between the two of them, it felt like Rabakina had the advantage. It was just that one moment that the typically calm and placid Rabakina allowed herself to get frustrated that Sabalenka no stranger to drama was able to take advantage of the upset and make her way into what was then her first quarterfinal it was really just at the, it's, it's funny to imagine at the time that they were two 
players who were very much on the same level. If anything, Rabakina was trending a little bit up, having just made her first major quarterfinal. But yeah, I think this is this is what we were expecting from Rabakina. Even if she was the number 17 seed, even people weren't really talking about her before the tournament. I mean, this is someone who dealt with COVID earlier this season, a big reason why she hasn't wasn't really a factor, you know, after the Australian Open swing, had an illness after Paris, why she wasn't really a big factor in the grass court warm-up. She is, I mean, she's someone who, like Halep, has had her physical struggles, who was sick who was injured and is now finally happy and healthy and playing her best yeah. tennis. And so it really feels like all signs are pointing to an electric semifinal between the two of them. They're both playing by all accounts, peak tennis. Yeah. Very well said. I think when you look for Elena Rabakina again, 20 and seven now for her career on a grass court, it's funny. She had only reached, you know, she's only reached two, uh, excuse me. She's never reached a final in her career on grass courts, but she's now reached three different semifinals in eight total events, obviously reached the fourth round of Wimbledon last year as well. Look, I, I've uh, it's not new news, and shout out to another subtweet. You and Gil are just coming after me during this 2022 Wimbledon. It hurts to be right all the time. But, uh, you know, in our Women's Contenders podcast, I threw in Rabakina as a top five contender simply because when she catches fire, the power tennis she can play is that sort of transcendent level where it's like, yeah, sure, she can be in the mix. And someone, a loving listener, I forget who you are in this moment. I sincerely apologize for that fact but shout out to you for having my back much appreciated and saying you know I think Gruskin named her a top five contender going into the Wimbledon and that was Gil's point is that yeah he always harps on the power tennis that Rabakina can play I mean you see it front hand and again the draw has opened up for her there are no Russians in the draw no Belarusians either certainly that's always worth mentioning but credit to Elena Rabakina who's dropped just well there's one Russian in the draw here we go yeah there it is and so I mean, what are you, and do you have any takes on that? I mean, I wrote about it actually yeah. for, for baseline, the idea that so what um, we call a bounce pass to you. That was our little alley-oop <laughs> for you to dunk. I mean, this, listen, there's no getting around the fact that Rabakina was born in Moscow, that culturally she's very much Russian. I think, you know, it's very clear from her own telling of the story that the reason why she's representing Kazakhstan is because they offered her financial stability. I mean, she was a player who was very practical, comes from a practical family who were worried about how she was going to afford this very expensive career. And she is someone who was putting out feelers to play college tennis. I mean, no offense to college tennis, but could you imagine this kind of talent in college tennis for four years? I mean, it just seems like, well, I don't want to say su- a waste. Cam Nori, <laughs> Cam Nori would suggest that, no, it would not have been a waste, but go on. Well, As with I mean, Danielle think- Collins and Jennifer Brady. Sorry, sorry, you hit a soft spot. Go on. Yeah, I, again, those are, that's a really great list of players who belong in college tennis yeah. or certainly were advantaged by being in college tennis. I don't think yeah. you look at Rabakina. Rabakina was ready now. Uh, she was someone true. who was ready to make that transition. Whereas I think, yes, for some players who need that extra development, Lisa Raymond, shout out, you know, mm-hmm. that helps, you know, that time to really develop your game and become an all court player and, and kind of deal with the, the mental and all the stream and drawing that, that it takes to become a pro player. And, you know, Kazakhstan reached out, offered, you know, their tremendous resources. I'm using the word tremendous like crazy. It's very Ed McGrogan word. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not inconsiderable amount of resources that have been, you know, taken advantage of by the likes of a Yulia Potintseva, of an Alexander Bublik, of a, you know, recently retired Yaroslava Shvedova, even a Cecile Karantancheva. Back in the day, Galina Voskaboeva. I mean, these are some of my favorite players who have taken advantage of that system and have, you know, benefited from it. I mean, with all of the uncertainties that tennis can give a player, if there is a federation willing to offer you, you know, 
all of this off the top. And in exchange, you have to you have to wave their their blue and yellow flag. Sign me up. It sounds like a pretty great deal. I mean, for all from all that I've heard, the um, the facilities in Astana are, or, or I think rather Neural Satan, Neural Satan now is is really something to behold. And you know, it's tough to get um, great resources, coaching expenses, all of this stuff adds up. And Rabakina took advantage of that decision, and could very well be the person holding the trophy. You know, which I think many people will talk about the fact that she may have sidestepped this ban that of Russian and Belarusians, but this is a decision that was made four or five years ago. If she could have had the foresight to know that she'd be able to play the 2022 Wimbledon championships five years ago, I would have loved to help her uh, pick out some lottery tickets. I feel like that was some, that's so Elena, uh, if uh, for lack of a better, <laughs> back of a better reference. But yeah, I think, I wonder how much that's going to happen in terms of media coverage. If she does end up making the final, a Russian winning Wimbledon, insane, you know, but I wonder um, what will become of that. But otherwise, you know, it's quite a story in light of everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks. No doubt about that. And look, she's got to get through Simona Halep next. Halep, Rabakina have played three times in their career. Now, the first one was Rabakina's only win. Uh, Halep had to retire down 5-4 in the first set. The two times they've played since then, both classics. Halep, three-set victory, 7-6 in the third in the Dubai final back in 2020. Halep, 6-3 in the third victory at last year's U.S. Open. That was a third-round matchup. Look... Elena Rabakina has got the biggest weapons on the court, right? Certainly, you'd say maybe the fitness of Simona Halep might be the second biggest weapon, and obviously the mind of Simona Halep belongs in that conversation as well. But serve, forehand, backhand, Rabakina has the distinct power advantage. I think Simona Halep does an excellent job of spreading the court, whether it's the slice out wide on the deuce to just open up that ad side of the accord and attack it in whatever way possible. The depth and the power she's able to generate in the outer thirds of the court, of course, again, uh, she will cr- force you to have to hit that extra shot, put hit that extra put away. At the same time, I just think there's more move forward to the net aggression in the game of Elena Rabakina, where I think she'll give herself a little bit more margin than Amanda Nisimova, who wants to be hitting that winner from the baseline. I think Rabakina is fine hitting the 85% approach shot following that ball into the net and feeling comfortable in her skill set at the net. And so, you know, yes, Halep was able to extend rallies against Anisimova, and Anisimova offered the unforced error. With how well Rabakina is playing right now, I don't know that she'll give away that unforced error as freely. I think she'll be more willing to say, okay, Simona, we'll track down this one now as well. And if you come up with magic, all power to you in the world. And there's certainly a world where, you know, the on the slide, Djokovic on his belly flop, backhand passing shot winner, Simona Halep could do that. She could probably do that four or five times against Rabakina in this semifinal. That said, she may have to do that with how well Rabakina is serving your take on this match, who you got. It's funny. I was actually at the first time that uh, Halep and Rabakina played in a little town called Wuhan. I don't think we'll be back there anytime soon. (laughs) That was an odd one. Halep seemed to pick up an injury in that first set and things ended pretty quickly. And I was also at her U.S. Open match where indeed Rabakina got the better of Halep in that first set. And then for the the next two, um, Halep really had her way with Rabakina, just was able to handle the pace, redirect and played some really great tennis uh, towards the end of that one. You know, I keep waiting for Halep to have a letdown. I wondered if she might have a letdown today, especially after how well she played against Bedosa. I mean, I I think it's harder to imagine 
two great performances followed by a letdown, especially because she will know the dangers that Rybakina will present. This is not, you know, a surprise unseated semifinalist that maybe someone might let their guard down against. And all of a sudden you're, you know, trapped in this weird three setter that you weren't expecting. So I think she'll know that there's another challenge waiting for if she wants to make another Wimbledon final, you know, at the same time, Rybakina is going to present a bit more power and a bit more consistency than Inisimova. So I think we are certainly headed towards a three-setter, but certainly not one that's going to happen by accident. Yeah. Look, Elena Rabakina today, I love the resilience in sets number two and three. In particular, in set number two, it was just like, what am I doing? Like, I have more power than this Tomjanovic. Stop playing to her backhand. You're too willing to play on her terms in the rally. I love the adjustment that Rabakina was going to make. The problem is there's just no discernible weakness in the game of Simona Halp, the way there is in the game of Alia Tamjanovic. I'm, I'm sorry for dumping on the Tamjanovic forehand. I don't mean to do so, but at this stage of the tournament, these margins, again, having something you can attack consistently is critical. I just, you know, again, if if the first serve isn't generating free points for Rabakina, is she going to start pressing? If you start pressing, that's the kiss of death against Simona Halp. She's just going to make you pay over and over again. That said... You know, we saw what happened when Tamjanovic had to start floating second serves and what happened to Halep today when she had to float second serves against Anisimova. Rabakina is going to be able to do that same thing. So that first serve percentage is critical for Simona Halep. And that first serve has been working for her throughout the course of this grass court season. But, I mean, my heart says Rabakina. Why not ride with the take that I've been riding with for the past couple of years now? My head says Halep, and I think I'm going to go with the head, Simona Halep. I think she wins this match. I think it's going to be a tight-fought match. I think it's a fi- I think it's like a 5-5 five and five win for Simona Halep, and she gets into you know a 13th consecutive win at Wimbledon. Feel about right? Yeah, I think ultimately at the moment, it would appear that Halep has very much worked her way into form. She's prepared for the kind of power that Robakin is going to bring to court. Nerves playing your first Grand Slam semifinal. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine it's Halep, although the most cautiously, because I just feel like I've, I w- I've been expecting this breakthrough from Halep all year and it hasn't happened yet. So this would be the first one where I'm thinking ready for you to, to go deep at a slam and so, or, or any big tournament. I mean, she had some close calls, even in Indian Wells, when she had Iga Shvantec on the ropes and you think, is she going to restore order here? And it doesn't end up happening. And then the clay court season was what it was in Madrid, you know, through French Open. Cautiously, I'm picking Halep as well. Simona Halp, 70% favorite according to Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast, minus 340 favorite according to our friends at DraftKings. With that said, let's move over to semifinal number two on the women's side. And we're going to spend far less on time on this semifinal, I promise, than we did on our first. Simply put, I've already recapped, obviously, the runs of Own Jabour and Tatiana Maria to get here on yesterday's podcast. So we'll try to just focus on the semifinal specifically. David, you look for the 34-year-old Tatiana Maria, 36-16 and 16 overall on the season. The majority of her victories, though, coming at the 60K or 100K level now. You look at her through this run at Wimbledon, four three-set victories, whether it was Kirstea, Sharma in the first two rounds, three sets over Ostapenko and Nehemiah in the last two, you just keep thinking, when's the 34-year-old going to run out of juice? When is enough going to be enough? And yet, again, I talk about the lack of discernible weakness. 
I don't see a glaring hole in the game of Tatiana Maria. Obviously, you see the one-handed backhand. You think maybe a Rabakina, the overwhelming pace of that might overwhelm it. But Ostapenko wasn't able to do it. Niemeyer wasn't able to do it. And so just, again, I know you'll have particularly strong feelings about this. But for Tatiana Maria, 34 years old, into her first Grand Slam single semifinal. I mean, regardless of the fact that at number 103 in the world, it sucks that she's not going to get the rankings points that would allow her to have such a more fun North American summer. But get that money, Tatiana. And that's what she got with this semifinal run. Again, the sort of money you make at this stage of your career to think, huh, maybe I should play another year. Maybe I should continue to give it a go. What do you make of this run? First of all, I'm insulted that she would put Ostapenko and Niemeyer in the same boat. I mean, I think those are two (laughs) very different scenarios. You know, Ostapenko played a bad match, certainly when she was up. And Niemeyer is someone who's just deeply inexperienced and, you know, couldn't close at the stretch either. But I think those are two fairly different scenarios. The second one is that, look, Tatiana Maria had her second child last April and she was back playing in July. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a crazy turnaround, but this goes to show this was always the plan. She believed that she can come back and she believed she could continue her career with two children, which is pretty much unheard of. I mean, the only player, active player who really attempted to come back with this, having had more than one child was Kim Kleisters. And that was sort of a, you know, an airy fairy sort of comeback, you know, lockdown impacted, then also just a strange one all told from, from the Belgian. But I mean, third of all, I mean, we talk about the early losses that Tatiana Maria has had at slams, but um, you know, Matt Trilope from Australian tennis magazine was kind enough to compile some of those losses. And when you put that in perspective, I mean, she lost to Christea at the French Sakari last year, uh, this year in Australia risk, Kanepi, Kerber, Collins, Serena. I mean, these are some heavy hitting opponents and rough draws that she has gotten early in these majors. And certainly perhaps with a kinder draw, she might've gotten a little bit farther, a little bit sooner. But going back to what we said, I think the last time that we spoke, I mean, looking at Maria's game, the consistency on grass, the backhand, she's very much fulfills the profile of a surprise Wimbledon semifinalist. I mean, I, I was talking to another somebody else on Twitter yesterday, sort of like the WTA golden ratio of semifinalists. Mm-hmm. If you can get three reasonable title contenders and a surprise, I feel like that's sort of the ideal that this era of women's tennis can aspire to where you're, you know, odds are you're going to get a credible final between the two finalists, or you'll end up with a surprising finalist, a surprising champion, but at least your odds are pretty much hedged in the favor of reason and logic. But um, going back to Maria's win over Neymar, just so impressive that she was able to withstand sort of the emotional nature of the match. Again, you know, playing the biggest match of your career as a mother of two, and now playing, you know, one of your really close friends in Onjavor for what could be your first Grand Slam final. Like Rybakina, but perhaps a little bit less like Rybakina. Not totally out of this. I mean, Jabor is also playing her first Grand Slam semifinal for as much experience as she's managed to compile in the last year. This is still the final frontier for the Tunisian, and this is going to be another emotional match for her to you know get over that finish line. We saw her struggle in the quarters early on against Marie Buskova. How will she handle this occasion when she is the clear, 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 clear favorite to make her first major final? You know, this could back this could be a wacky one. If we're talking seven five, seven five for between Rabakin and Halep, it could be, you know, a much longer, much wilder scoreline between Jabour and Maria. Well, to your point about own Jabour, I mean, yes, it's her first semifinal at a Grand Slam, but Jabour's thirty-five and nine 
in 2022. She's number two in the world for a reason, folks. One of six players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. And Jabour now 95 and 35. 95 and 35, David, in this pandemic era of the WTA Tour since August 2020 against opponents ranked outside the top 50 during this stretch. She's 51 and 11, winning 82% of her matches in those scenarios. Now, uh, obviously, two of her losses this season coming to players ranked outside the top 50 in Magda Lynette, Daria Gavrilova, but for what it's worth, both of those matches, as you alluded to, also funky three-set affairs where she still had plenty of chances. Of course, you look for her now at the slams since August 2020. She's 21-7 and overall now into, again, uh, what is it? In her last four slams played, she's now, I mean, the last four, two of them are Wimbledon, but she's made the quarterfinals or further at her last two Wimbledons, made round of 16 or further at three out of the last five slams that she's played. I mean, again, to your point, much like a Rabakina, like a Jabour, just it's not weird to see her at this stage of the tournament. And, you know, of all the top four seeds, as comfortable as everyone felt about Iga Sviantek, Jabour was probably the biggest lock of the top four seeds to advance out of her quarter, actually get to the semifinals of the draw. And to her credit, she's done so, and she's done so fairly undramatically. Again, outside of an incredible start to the match by Marie Buskova, where she was just tracking down every drop shot, and Jabour was not showing the requisite patience needed to open up a sp- enough space for herself to hit Buzkova out off the court. But, you know, again, Jabour's dropped just one set in her five victories, has won now 10 consecutive grass court matches, dating back to her win uh, in the second week uh, on the grass courts this year. Has it been the most difficult draw? No. I mean, she's only faced one seed. It was the aforementioned future Iga Sviantek in Elisa Mertens. Um, but, like, she, you can't control who you face, and, the, and given how big a favorite she was in the majority of her matches, she's looked every bit the part of that favorite in the results we've seen unfold. I mean, you look via Tennis Abstract, which, by the way, shout out to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast. Since day number one of the tournament, they've had Own Jabour as the favorite to win it all. Jabour an 86.7% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. She's minus 800, according to our friends at DraftKings. I just don't know what Maria is going to do to hurt her. And haven't we seen now five consecutive matches here at Wimbledon? If you can't hurt Own Shabur, eventually she's just going to figure you out. Yeah, I don't know if I would have made her my number one pick of the top four seeds. Certainly, I would have had her in my top two, <laughs> far and away from uh, Annette Kontavite and Palabados. Probably would have had Iga Sviantek ahead of Shabur. If for no other reason, the winning streak and also the fact of the matter is that, you know, Shabur came into Roland Garros very much among the top favorites to win that title, if not the hard lock number two. She was my pick to win the title, and she goes out the Sunday before technically it feels like the tournament even began. So I think going into this um, Grand Slam, there was certainly reason to feel cautious about what she will do at another major tournament. This is probably her second now where she's, you know, one to watch going into the draw, and she has definitely taken advantage of the draw. You know, now we're in the semifinals and things could be a little bit different. You know, I wonder the closer you get to a big title, the nerves are always different and everything kind of takes control. But, you know, she's certainly going to have plenty of opportunities in much the same way that she did seemingly against Lynette in Paris. So I think that, you know, she will need to be able to stay out of her own way, create, continue to create her opportunities and capitalize on them. And she should make her first Grand Slam final. I mean, she's certainly probably the one who is most burnt 
by the lack of ranking points in the sense that she could have really made a big push and break away from that sort of what feels like, I think, a three-way tie between her, Contavai, Pedosa, and maybe even one other player, like that weird two through five range of players. And um, she's still going to be very much in the thick of that, but certainly is going to come out of it with the most momentum to break away as soon as possible with the uh, the oncoming hardcore swing. But well, I, th- um, I think we'd call them tier two players. And on the right week, Sakari belongs in that tier two. Sevalenka belongs Sakari was in that the other tier. one. Yeah, I could see it on the tip of your tongue. I was like, you, you were looking for the Maria. I was like, I'm coming with it, David, I promise. But like Pagula, maybe the outer bounds of that final tier. It's like... Yeah, Jabour, if anything, she might, she's the Berrettini, it feels like maybe, of the women's side, where it's like she's going to beat everyone she's supposed to beat. She'll get her looks at the top dogs. It just depends what the surface is, how well those some of the other players are playing. But, yeah, I mean, Owens has been So you mean she's going to sprain her wrist and catch COVID and not play the next two slams? <laughs> it's in the realm of possibilities. Never count things out at the Fortnite that is Wimbledon. Too much strawberries and cream can do that to you, David. But with that said... I think we're both picking Halep versus Jabour for our finals. I do. And I, part of me still, I mean, I still feel very glamored by what, you know, Jabour has been able to do for the last couple of months, including beat Halep at Madrid. So it, it does make me think that she in some ways has the upper hand, but what Halep has been able to show in her last two matches really neutralizes what would have been Jabor's advantage against really any other finalist. I mean, if it's a Jabor Rabakina final, I think it's something that the Tunisian walks away with quite handily. I just feel like that she would just have too much for the Russian born Kazakh in that kind of a match, but against Halep with her experience, it feels like that should be the one that, that the Romanian walks away with, but we will see. We will indeed. With that said, that's your preview of Thursday's matches. And look, because I have David here, I want to pick his brain not only on day 10's matches on the men's side, but get a little look at the men's semifinals as well. Of course, we'll be previewing those men's semifinals on tomorrow's podcast also. But with that said, let's start with the day 10 men's quarterfinals we saw unfold. And look, on paper, there's no denying there's appeal in the matchup between Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios. We all will get to see unfold in the Wimbledon men's semifinals. But, of course, far more notably is the story we learned over the past 48 hours that Nick Kyrgios now faces charges of assault. And he'll have to go before a court in Australia to hear those charges, whether he will be formally charged by the prosecutor's office or not. That decision reportedly has not yet been uh, announced. And certainly Kyrgios, who came out with uh, whose lawyer came out with a statement discussing the seriousness of the allegations, which date back to an incident in December 21. The lawyer has made clear that Nick will not be speaking about that uh, throughout the remainder of this Wimbledon. If you watch today's post-quarterfinal uh, match press conference, excuse me, he also made clear that you know, in his words, well, he'd love to address it. He's made clear that he will not be addressing this at this time. David, the big picture story. Basilashvili, Zverev, Sabathvild, Nick Kyrgios, four top 100 players, obviously two, three of them more prominent than Sabathvild, but four top 100 players, three top 30 guys, all facing credible accusations uh, or some, you know, again, of some sort of assault or some sort of, again, serious off-court incident while we we see no response no sort of action no sort of words even from the ATP tour 
what is your reaction to this latest saga of the story, obviously from the Kyrgios side as well as from the ATP side? Well, I think from the ATP side, I mean, I think given the coverage and, you know, moving testimony of um, Olya Sharapova, he presented a lot in terms of testimony and the ATP has really made no meaningful comments. They have opened an investigation that remains open-ended to this day. And we don't really know what their, their eventual findings or statement will be on the matter. And so given their lack of, you know, real affirmative action on that issue, I certainly didn't expect much from uh, this, this latest incident involving Curious. I mean, you mentioned those four, but I think the two that we know the most about, or we feel that we know the most about, because obviously this is the, this is what is so sinister about domestic violence is that you feel you know a person until you get to know them behind closed doors and they maybe turn out to be someone totally different. So it is hard to speak on someone's character. That said, I think a big difference between Zverev and Kyrgios is that um, Kyrgios has been much more upfront about the fact that he is a man with demons. I mean, I think anyone who has watched his matches, certainly when he is at his worst, understand that. I mean, I think that's what's made the Zverev instance even more confusing because we didn't really know him to be any kind of a way. Whereas I think based on the way that Kyrgios conducts himself, and if you would, if this had been Olia and Nick, I think people would have been a lot more quick to believe that story. And I think people are very quick to believe this story. And I do believe in, you know, not to wildly speculate it, but I, given sort of the news that had come out over the last year between Nick and this ex-girlfriend, the, um, the fact that they had to be separated during Australian open quarantine, moved into separate hotel rooms, there was certainly something there, you know, even her Instagram stories and text messages that she shared between herself and Nick, this seemed to be a very toxic relationship. And so what we, we don't know the details really of what happened, but it certainly seemed like that there was something there. And now it, it certainly might appear that there's something even more there. And the, the fact that he didn't, the fact that he nor his lawyer really actively denied anything, just said that this is something we're not going to be speaking about at all. I don't really know. I'm not familiar with the, the workings of the Australian legal system, but given all we've gotten from Zverev is strenuous denials, you would have expected something similar from Kyrgios in the, in the wake of this. But I mean, certainly the fact that he was able to put this aside um, and play probably one of his best matches of the tournaments is, um, you know, it goes to show that, you know, even when, when something bad is happening, you know, you, you're able to put this aside and people will watch and, fall in love with Nick Kyrgios and not know the full spectrum of what happened. I don't believe it was mentioned on ESPN's commentary, which I wouldn't have, again, I would not have expected given the fact that they've been relatively silent regarding Alexander Zverev, but all told it's a, um, it's another sad chapter in this story. And so we, and, and I certainly look forward to getting more perspective details and as much as we're able to be privy to. Well, I do want to point out it was, it was commented on by Chris Fowler and Darren Cahill okay. throughout the course of ESPN's broadcast. And, you know, I I do have to ask, and again, I try not to play commentator commentary, but it was fairly clear that Chris Fowler was given the edict, hey, I know you're our guy, but we're not having the McEnroe's call Curios today. We're just not doing that anymore. And so we're going to put you and Cahill on court number one, even though Chris Fowler is the premier center court announcer for ESPN. He was calling Curios Green, not Nadal Fritz. That's notable. From a commentary standpoint, and given the discussion we had on the last show you were on about how the McEnroe brothers' lack of fondness, we'll say politely, for Nick Kyrgios in the moment, they were just like, we're not doing that again. And I do think that is worth noting. But yeah, it's just – again, it comes down to, well, what can't – A, 
if this was known about by Nick Kyrgios prior to the start of Wimbledon, it's incumbent upon the ATP to act and ensure that they become aware as the governing structure of tennis to ensure that a storyline like this can't consume the back half of a major championship at the same time, even if the ATP was aware of of this allegation coming forward prior to the start of Wimbledon, do we trust them to have the wherewithal and or, you know, impetus to act and to make some sort of gesture, some sort of suspension, some sort of anything? No, the ATP's actions have indicated that they, that is not how they intend on governing. That is not, they are not a proactive governing body. They are very much reactive. It's horrifying because on one side, of course, as a tennis fan, to see Nick Kyrgios, what was it, seven years since the last time we've seen him in a slam quarterfinal, a guy who was a junior slam champion, who is capable with his transcendent serve of competing, even against a Nadal, a Djokovic, a Federer, a Murray in this era. He's played all of them extraordinarily well when he's been fit, when he's been healthy, when when he's been playing his best tennises. He so clearly is right now. And, you know, I've talked enough about Nick Kyrgios' grass court tennis, so I won't burden all of you listeners with hearing me repeat myself for the millionth time about how he's holding 93.6% of the time. That's number one on the eight. You, you all know that by now. All of that is clouded now by the announcement of, you know, again, uh, of these charges, of this assault allegation. And it's just, it's so unfortunate. And I don't mean to bemoan it, like it's unfortunate <sighs> for us as fans. Sorry, because I want to be clear here. If there, uh, you know, again, Always, to your point, the Instagram messages have been posted in what was a volatile relationship. You're always going to be inclined, at least here on this podcast, we will always be inclined to believe women when they come forward with these sorts of allegations. That transcends the importance of anything happening on a tennis court. The serious of those natures, discovering the truth, discovering what happened, needs to be addressed first and foremost. As a tennis fan, it's also undeniable, though, that this sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly coming at a time where, if you're, in a way, it's coming at a very good time for Nikirios, this sort of this sort of news, because it is coming at a time when he is experiencing a tremendous windfall of success. I mean, if he had lost that match to Stefano Tsitsipas, given what, it, what had transpired during that match, and then this news came out, I think it really would have buried him, certainly in the court of public opinion. And I think, you know, we talk about the McEnroe brothers and how they approached the Sitsipas match. I certainly noticed a change in tone from the fourth round, or rather from the third round to the fourth round. You know, as I mentioned in that podcast with you, success breeds credibility. And I think even, you know, at the ESPN desk after his win over Green, there was a lot more willingness to be charmed by behavior that they were so offended by only a couple of days ago. I mean, even with Chris Everett before his fourth round talking about how, well, it was different with John McEnroe because John McEnroe would get mad for a minute and then he would calm down and play tennis. And I think they, the very similar language was used to describe Nick Kyrgios and his match against Green. Well, he got mad, but he got mad for a minute and he moved on, you know? So it's just, it's funny how when you win, suddenly everything that you do is given a bit of a charming sheen. And I think that's also what has shielded Alexander Zverev for the last several years. I mean, it's harder to criticize somebody when they are winning and they're playing great tennis and we associate great tennis and we associate success with goodness. You know, that is an inherent issue with whether it's our culture or just sort of the world culture at large. If you are doing good things at your job, you are thought to be a great unimpeachable person because obviously people make mistakes and people do things that they regret and that whatever happened between Nick and even 
you know, to a large extent, what happened with with Alexander Zverev doesn't necessarily make him a, a bad, evil person. But it is whatever it is. You would hope that if it is true, accountability is taken. You know, and and whatever can be done to make amends for what happened is done. Again, the fact that there was no strenuous denial makes me think that there is certainly something there, and we will probably get more details as things unfold. Um, it would it will certainly be a strange shadow on what remains of this Wimbledon title because. Um, Nick Kyrgios is one of the few people who probably could beat Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic back to back and win his first slam. And he, he is that good at tennis. And so that'll be, you know, we, we thought we probably narrowly avoided this sort of scenario with Alexander Zverev at the French. We may end up getting it with Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon. So the ATP, if nothing else, by the end of the year, probably needs to figure out how to approach what is becoming a worrying trend among their players. Absolutely. So well put. And again, Kyrgios, a 6'4", 6'3", 7'6", victory over Christian Green today to advance to his first slam semifinal. He uh, and Cam Norrie. By the way, shout out to the 1995s, finally making a big push at a Grand Slam on the men's side. Told you all my birth year was going to make that sort of run, but they become the 19th and 20th players, respectively born 1990 or later, to make a semifinal at a major and I mean, look, for Kyrgios right now, according to Tennis Abstract singles forecast, he's got a 49% shot of beating Rafael Nadal. According to our friends at DraftKings, Nick Kyrgios, minus 155. He's the favorite to uh, advance over Rafa in the semifinals. Of course, Rafael Nadal today, survival in its finest fashion. 3-6-7-5, When I say in its finest fashion, I should say in truest sense of the word survival. Rafa couldn't do much of anything above his head today. The serve was a struggle. The overhead was erratic. And, you know, bending over even, being on the stretch, that seemed difficult for Nadal at times. And yet... When he was up 4-3 in the, th- the fifth, felt like Rafa was going to find a way to escape. However, Taylor Fritz gets the break back for four all. Two sloppy games of tennis get us to a fifth set breaker and ultimately Rafa. 3 3-6, 7-5, 3-6, 7-5, 7-6, 10-4 in the deciding fifth set. He advances to a 38th, 38th Grand Slam semifinal uh, seventh, eighth, eighth Wimbledon semifinal of his career. He's now a perfect 21 and 0. 21 and 0? No, 19 and 0. Let's try that again. A perfect 19 and 0 at the Slams this season, but two wins away from capturing three of the first four legs you need for the calendar slam. Full circle here on that point, David. Nick Kyrgios minus 155. Should he be the favorite right now, given Rafa's performance against Fritz? I mean, if Rafa is as injured as he appeared to be for large swaths of that match against Fritz, then Kyrgios is absolutely the favorite to make the, the final. I mean, it was, we have heard a lot about Rafael Nadal's injuries basically for as long as he's been a pro. I think this is the first time I can personally remember seeing an injury of Rafael Nadal in real time. I mean, he was really unable to engage his core he couldn't serve. There was no ability to really get low into his shots. That intensity that we expect from, from Nadal just wasn't there for most of that match. It came back when it needed to in that fifth set tiebreaker, and he was able to get over the line for Fritz, who was 
bitterly disappointed not to take care of that one. And it was really strange to see Fritz and Sinner back-to-back five setters against uh, Nadal and Djokovic and neither of them able to put the much older man away. (laughs) I mean, certainly even more rough for Fritz, the fact that Nadal did seem very much out of sorts for most of that match. It appeared that Uncle Tony was encouraging Nadal to retire. He doesn't do it plays through this match and, you know, is, you know, obviously with the calendar year grand slam on the line, you don't want to have it end in a retirement against a player that you probably feel like you could have beaten, you know, if you were healthy and then even unhealthy was able to do it. And so it all depends on how he's able to pull up in the semifinal against Nick, because based on the way that Nick has played his last two matches against Nakashima and green, didn't have to sacrifice a ton of physicality, of physical energy, will be in really good shape heading into that one. And he seems as hungry as ever to prove everybody wrong and prove that he's going to be one who can win a Grand Slam. And he's got to be the favorite, you know, yeah. unless unless Nadal comes comes uh, forth feeling much better on well, Friday. Well, Nadal just struggled to do anything with his serve in this match. And you look for Rafa, who made 65% of his first serves, won 70% of his first serve points. That sounds better in theory than it was in actuality. Rafa also only winning 47% of his second serve points. He faced 14 break points in this match. Fritz broke up eight times in this one. And, you know, the struggle for Taylor Fritz was his first serve abandoned him in that fifth set and, you know, in parts of the fourth as well, just wasn't able to find the pace he needed down the home stretch particularly in that fifth set breaker. But, you know, you look for Fritz, who hit 56 winners against 35 unforced errors in this match, 19 aces. That feels very replicable for Nick Kyrgios. And, you know, the way Fritz was able to absorb some of the Rafa forehand topspin with his backhand wing, Nick has the sort of backhand that's going to be able to do that as well. I mean, look, I think they've played nine times in their career, have Rafa and Kyrgios. You look for Rafa overall again. Again, against Nick Kyrgios, he is currently six and three overall. But you know, again, they're one and one in their career when they've played head to head at Wimbledon. Yeah, I think there were again the most impressive thing for Rafa is just how he finds ways to survive. Fifty six winners against forty two unforced errors, twenty six of thirty six at the net. He covered sixteen thousand eight hundred forty seven feet. In this match, that's what three plus miles of sprints Rafa's doing, despite having whatever's going on in his ab and just clearly some of the difficulties getting low on the surface right now. Now, all the credit in the world to Fritz, who down 4 3, 15 all, fifth set, backhand half volley. It was poorly executed, but it sneaks over the net for 15 30. And, you know, he's able to get that break that back there for four all force this uh, fifth set deciding breaker. There's definitely a little, it's tough for the next gen. Like if Fritz can't get through here, if Medvedev can't get over the two sets to the finish line in the Australian open. And, you know, again, I, those are two prominent examples of late Tsitsipas last year at the French open up two sets to love. Just, you compiled Sinner, obviously, at this Wimbledon as well, over and over and over again. These next-gen players are having their opportunities, and they're just not able to get over the finish line, even against an ailing Rafael Nadal. As we look at this match, is that a credit to Nadal, or is that a strike against Fritz? It's a strike against Fritz. I mean, the ATP and WTA have two very different but very similar problems when it comes to transfer of power. The ATP's problem is that the transfer of power is 
not happening. <laughs> you know, these guys are just continuing to play into almost their forties and they're really, for the most part, when they are mostly healthy and mostly playing their best are cleaning up at the slams. And the WTA has an issue where there was a transfer of power and the people to whom the power was transferred have not been able to back up that result. I mean, Serena hanging around for as long as she did was in some ways a tremendous boon to the WTA because we got to see Naomi Osaka, Bianca Andreescu get these sort of really um, crowning victories, even Simona Halep against Serena Wimbledon, these crowning victories over, you know, who was thought to be the best women's player in the game. Okay. This person beats you and now is considered the best in her own right. And they have not been able to, you know, carry that momentum down the finish line, you know, in some ways other than Halep, although Halep has had her own issues since 2019. So two very different issues, but, you know, I guess for the ATP, it's only a problem if, and when Nadal Djokovic and even Federer decide to retire. I mean, we're in a, we're in a space right now where, you know, there's no real, um, incentive for either of them to retire. I mean, Nadal uh, Djokovic seems as healthy as ever. He doesn't seem like he's really shown any signs of slowing down. Nadal has talked about injuries, but, you know, as, as dire as things seemed after the French Open, he comes back to Wimbledon feeling, looking better than ever. And, you know, if not for this ab injury, and which seems, you know, more acute than anything else, then um, something that's really going to haunt him for the rest of the season. So it's, it's a strange one. I mean, I guess it's, as long as Nadal and Djokovic and maybe Federer are continuing to win the, t- the slams, I guess the ATP feels like they're in a good position. But I guess, you know, given all the chaos happening underneath them, both on the court and in court, wink, you know, it's just uh, it's it's a weird one right now. Yeah, that, that very well put. I mean, again, credit to Rafa, who just summons the strength. You don't know how he does it, but you could tell fifth set breaker. It's just all adrenaline. He just is going to leave it all out on the court. And, you know, to me, one of the most definitive features, we didn't get a single Rafa roar. In this match, not one pumping fist pump, you know, the six pump of the arm fist pump that you seem to get from him in those big. Because he got to engage the core in those. Well, yeah, exactly. I think it's because he was dealing with so much pain management and energy tolerance where it's just like, I cannot afford to waste anything right now. I just need to survive in this match. Obviously, very notably, his sister, his, I believe, father were sitting in the crowd saying, hey, pull out of this match. Like, we're just done with this. Let's not do this anymore. And yet for the second consecutive season. A men's player has won their first 19 singles matches at the Slams. Just, yes, a testament to so many different things that we can explore as soon as we are done with this year's third Grand Slam. With all of that said, Rafa, uh, again, 6-3 and three in his career against Nick. He beat him in a dramatic three-set match at Indian Wells. Who are you taking as of right now, DK? I think it's Nick. I think it's going to be Nick. And I wouldn't be surprised if Nick wins Wimbledon. That's that's where I'm at. That's where I was at even yesterday. And it's where I'm at today. I think this is going to be his moment for better or for worse. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, with all that said, I've kept you here long enough. And I know we're going to do an extensive preview on Djokovic Nori on tomorrow's podcast, obviously, as we get ready for the men's single semifinals. That said, I'm not going to let you go without a take. You fire out some juice on that, like Nick Kyrgios uh, is going to win this Wimbledon. It's not going to shock you. Nori's the fourth guy in the open era to reach the men's single semifinals at Wimbledon. That's also British. And I do think, you know, I was talking to our mutual enemy, Gil Gross, on his Monday Match Analysis show, and we were doing our predictions, and he took Gofan in five, and my exact explanation for taking Nori in five was, look, in a fifth set, give me the guy who's playing a hometown match. Like, there just aren't home matches in professional tennis. Brits at Wimbledon is a home match. You have a home environment. 
That said, it's just like – Tell that to Tim Hammond. Well, that's true. Well, I'm saying at a certain extent, to a certain extent. It's like against a Novak, it's a different story. But, you know, against uh, David Goffin, it matters. Um, with that said, you just feel like Novak does everything better than Cam Norrie. And looking at this matchup, is there any pathway – to Nori for the upset. Like, Sinner had to play so well to win those first two sets, and then Djokovic just kind of looked at the clock like he did against Tim Van Reithoven and said, oh, no, 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 it's it's go time. Like, that was cute, but let's finish this quickly. And I just, again, he's minus 400 to win the tournament right now. I think even if Nick serves as well as he served, I don't see anyone stopping Novak. God, honestly, that Sinner-Djokovic match reminded me why I hate best of five so much. I mean, it was just... <laughs> To watch somebody fail to close their colossal lead for, I don't know, almost two hours and never really be in any danger of pushing Djokovic in any of the subsequent three sets after winning the first two, we could have wrapped this up in best of three. I mean, even after the fourth set, you know, when when Sinner went down and it seemed like perhaps he'd be injured, it was like, well... I don't really think he had much of a shot in the fifth anyway, which is, again, a strike against Sinner because, you know, he played so great against Carlos Alcaraz. He is significantly younger. You know, at this point, we're getting to the part where, you know, these kids can be sons to, you know, very young sons, to, but sons all the same to a uh, to a, a Rafa or a Djokovic who are a good 15, 16 years older than these um, these these sinners and Alcarazes is. But um, I don't know. I, I still want to see Djokovic through to the end because, as I've said, you know, the calendar Grand Slam hangover can be wacky. And we saw him be very flat against center for two sets. You know, could he be flat for a third if he comes out against Cam Norrie? You know, the the British crowd is certainly going to be on his side. We've certainly seen, certainly been on Norrie's side, not on Djokovic's side, but we've also seen Djokovic respond very positively to crowds that are anti-Djokovic. I very rarely remember Djokovic losing a match because the crowd, you know, really pushed him out of it. If anything, he's used those matches to inspire him to win it. So I think the fact that he's got, you know, a big partisan crowd coming might actually be what helps him make this final because otherwise it would be fascinating to see where he stacks up, you know, against, you know, just a run of the mill neutral opponent, because I think that the crowd is really going to carry him into this final, if nothing else. Yeah. Well said. I I do think for Nori, again, it's the free shot. Now it's, you've done the hard work. You've gotten to the semifinals. You've worn enough four men to do that in the open era in British tennis history. Now you're playing the three-time defendant champion world. Number one, if nothing else, there's nothing to lose, which is at least a starting point for Cam Nori and, you know, he'll have to serve exceptionally well. He'll have to take some chances on the backhand wing. He'll have to hope Djokovic is a bit off because, again, I don't think Nori has a definitive weapon to hurt Djokovic with consistently to win free points for himself just to ease the burden of having to beat Novak Djokovic three out of freaking five sets. Better for the sport. Djokovic-Nadal, djokovic Kyrgios final. Well, Brad Gilbert was very insistent that a Djokovic and Dahl final would be the best match in tennis history. Um, I'm not as certain of that. Um, I mean, what's better for tennis? That's a loaded question, given now what Kyrgios is going through. It's I mean, so I think tough. I know what's better for tennis. And you can't say tennis? that aside because you can't put that aside. You just can't. No, I mean, it's it's this the kind of thing where. <sighs> Is it better for tennis that we finally get someone, you know, come continue to come close to a calendar year Grand Slam? We came so close last year. I mean, does the fact that it's 
already happening a year after it almost happened the year before? Does that kind of diminish the the importance of what Djokovic was able to accomplish? I don't know. But I mean, it, we've certainly been beaten over the head for the last two decades that any match that involves some permutation of Federer and Nadal Djokovic is, you know, an amazing classic that will never be forgotten. So I guess what's better for tennis is a Djokovic uh, Nadal final, if only because of what's going on around Curios. I don't, you know, I mean, we're in this, but we're in this weird gray area now where, you know, people are celebrating Nick and people, Nick is finally getting positive accolades for his tennis and for his, his, what he brings to the court. And now there's all this other stuff happening. So, I mean, it's, it's tragic. And in some ways it almost is for him, it's happening, I guess, at the best possible time, because it's blunting all this criticism that he most certainly would have gotten very loudly. I mean, that press conference had he lost today would have been just only people asking about the, the summons and very little about the tennis but because he won and because he played as great as he did, you know, he was really able to ride the wave. And so it's, you know, what's better for tennis, I guess, is people without that kind of cloud over their head. So I guess what's better for tennis for lack of uh, a long winded way of saying it, what's better for tennis, I guess, is another rough ole matchup. Yeah, fair enough. Well, with all that said, DK, what can we expect from you over the final four days? Oh, just the last gasps of my of my <laughs> Wimbledon adrenaline. Um, I got a TBT coming out tomorrow in celebration of the recently retired Kristen Flipkins. Remember when she made a Wimbledon semifinal? Because I do. Yeah. Um, I got a, an advanced edition coming on, on Shabor coming out tomorrow. And then after that, we're going to do one on Nadal. And then we're going to preview the men's and women's finals all on tennis.com slash baseline. That is tennis.com slash baseline. Yeah. All right. With all of that said, as always, DK, appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the Benny Break podcast feed. Of course, we will have pick shows for all of you the rest of the day, daily recaps, as well as we all enjoy the home stretch of the year's third Grand Slam. Of course, a shout out, as always, to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. That promo code is CR15 with all of of that said for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell the people? Ooh, and that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Thanks for done, yeah. <laughs>